Blog Talk Radio. Part of the BookSpeak Network. The year is 1911, Italy, and a budding musician is faced with massive change, loss of family, a livelihood, and a need to take the big step of traveling to America. But Pietro is not the only one on this journey. Travel to a new land, trying to find one's place, and assimilating into the American dream. Hillary Hawk takes us through a tale based on true stories into the old ways and the remaking of lives in From Ashes to Song on the Sunbury Press Books imprint, Milford House. She is my guest today. Hillary, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tori, and thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I am really happy to uh, do something that's a little bit different. We have an historical novel of sorts, and as I was saying before we went on the air, we have something that is based in, in true stories, and uh, I think we should just get started because you have this, set up in, as I said, 1911 Italy, and in a vineyard, Pietro, our lead, is playing his clarinet, getting a song ready. I mean, you started us right away. Bring us to Pietro, who he is, and his environment. Okay, well, and by the way, I love the introduction you gave to the book, so I'm going to have to adopt that one. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so Pietro, um, he's um, a young man, and he is a brilliant clarinetist, um, but that's not the only part of him that is a musician. He um, he kind of processes life around him in sound. And uh, the way I got to this was, you know, um, such a brilliant musician. If I, as a writer, try and get in my character's heads and I try and be him for a moment, I found when I was writing this that I would close my eyes and just listen um, to the world and that would be how Pietro, um, you know, channels his music. So he is starting out in the um, in the vineyard, and what he's trying to do there is capture the sounds of the vineyard on his clarinet. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting, and that's an interesting thing too. The the way you say that you get into you, you're getting into the character. I mean, we create our characters, so there's a little bit of us in them, even if we try to keep them out. And that's an interesting, it's a, such a cool process of you become that. And then how did you seize on the idea of the sound and just sort of listening to the sound in a uni, in a, such a unique way? Um, I think it was, you know, through that writing process, you know, just trying to imagine him. But I also had, you know, as you mentioned, um, From Ashes, the song is based on a true story. And uh, the real Pietro died in 1952, so it was really hard to find anybody um, who remembered him as a person. But I had these clues about him from, um, you know, very different sources. There was, there was actually a court case that uh, he was taken to, and he was, uh, his friends wanted him to get workers' comp um, for an injury in the mine. And throughout the whole court case, he doesn't say a word. So that gave me a big clue to the fact that this man was very, very quiet, which doesn't always make the best characters, actually. You you need a character who's going to talk. Um, but it just drew me more into the kind of world he was living in. You know, he was a, a unique person, and uh, he didn't make sound. He was processing the sound. He was taking everything in. Um, and so another clue was that... Um, he grew up as a humble farmer. His family were probably sharecroppers. And then when he came to America, he was a coal miner. And so we're not talking about a musician who's been to um, a school of fine arts. Somebody who really has uh, 
you know, lived a, a, a very humble life, if you like, and, and how does that translate into a composer? Um, so for me, that makes sort of... it in his heart. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, in his heart, but also music is such a at the heart of the culture about him. I definitely want to ask you about this next. Um, You set this portion of Italy as Piedmont, which is on the border with Switzerland, and obviously the source material, and must also be the music, just comes from uh, the heritage there, and and so much of of the past just comes up out of the ground probably. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was a time when there was no television, there was no, uh, well... I can't remember the history of radio, but basically entertainment was going into the piazza and having the local band play, and uh, mm-hmm. whatever an event there was, there was always live music, so it really was part of the community. Mm-hmm. And now, you have been to this area, and you grew up in this area, I think. What What is it like? What is it like if, if, if a person has never been there? And they visited. What would they find? What 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 kind of a feeling would they get? Do you think? Ah, okay. Well, um, I did grow up in the UK actually, and then I lived in Italy for twelve years. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I lived in the north of Italy. I actually lived in Lombardia, which is a bit different from um, Piedmont, which is a little bit further west. Uh, Piedmont is absolutely gorgeous, and I don't think many tourists go there, but. They're definitely missing out because uh, it's very hilly. As far as you can, I, the eye can see, there are hills, and these hills are crisscrossed with vineyards. Um, it really is spectacular. And then you have loads of little medieval towns scattered on tops of hills. Um, it's just so charming and, and so wonderful. Wow. Well, and the other thing, too, is that you bring in, because family is such a big thing, you bring them in, and I was fascinated by Nono, such a dynamic character. He Tell us about this man and his influence on Pietro. Uh, well, doesn't everybody need a great uh, a grandparent, um, as in a wonderful grandparent, not a great grandparent? Um, so, yeah, so, uh, as I said, Pietro didn't go to school to study music, so the natural thing would have been for somebody in his family to teach him music. So I came up with this character about Nonno. This is part of Pietro's life that we don't know who taught him in the first place. Um, But, you know, I had a very special grandparent, so um, I decided that would be a really nice person to to teach Pietro. And uh, he does, but I think in the story, um, he teaches him music, and I think he over-teaches Pietro and he realizes that he's taught Pietro everything. And Pietro uh, has absorbed the lessons, but he's not learned his independence. Um, mm-hmm. He still relies too heavily on Nono's teachings. And uh, hopefully it comes across that Nono realizes that. Um, but it's really too late to do anything about it. So Pietro's thrust off on his own, and he's got to figure that out by himself. Yes, and, well, we won't give it away, but Nono has to make a decision, and that set in motion Pietro's quest. And I think you pointed it out well that his going, having to suddenly leave, you know, because his prospects are now gone, he must go to America. And I think he sort of approaches it with a certain amount of this, this could be exciting, but at the same time, I think there's a, he must have been rather scared. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of the coming to America I can channel personally through my own experience because I grew up in the UK and uh, I went to Italy kind of on a whim. And uh, I said to my mom, well, I'm going to Italy. And she said, lovely, dear, how long for? And I told her, I don't know. And uh, that was 12 years later. (laughs) Um, 12 years later, I actually moved to the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) It, well, it's it's something uh, it's something I must ask about uh, a, a little bit later on here. I want to bring up the other lead in the story, the woman uh, Asunta. She really stands out, and the thing that I noted about her is there is a real strength in this woman. It's like a quieter strength. I mean, she is not a helpless way for anything like that. Um, tell us about her. Oh yes, yes. I love Asunta. She's um she's also inspired by the real Asunta 
and um, she died in the 70s. So I was able to talk to people about what she was like. Uh, and what she was like it really contrasted with what she had been through. So I imagined her to be a very optimistic person and very determined that she was going to come to America and she was going to set up a, a new life and she could do it and um, she could overcome all the obstacles and you know very, be very optimistic about it all. But then, of course, life has some hurdles and uh, poor things. She, she does go through a lot, and the real Asunta does go through a lot. And, um, but she comes out on the other side, I think, more true to, uh, true to her character and true to her starting point. Mm-hmm. And one of the obstacles, though it certainly probably didn't appear it at the beginning, was a fellow named Nandi. What does this man represent? Who was he? Uh, he also was um, a real person, so um, births, deaths, and marriages tend to be accurate, um, you know, historically speaking. Um, Nandi's a kind of villain, um, and I, I like to think he's a bit of a scoundrel in love, um, because I, I think he was a man of his times at the same time. He would definitely not win any Husband of the Year awards. Mm-hmm. But I think he's a good man in his heart. I think his intentions deep down are good. Mm-hmm. And as we say, uh, From Ashes to Song is based on these real tales. And uh, the photos that uh, per- you provided of these folks, they just seem, uh, they remind me of my ancestors' pictures. My sister Susan is is big into our family's genealogy. And when I look at pictures of, of folks from uh, New England, you know, in the the eight, you know, like late 18th, early 19th, early 20th centuries, and then you look at some of the folks that we've been able to find photos of from the UK, because that's where all of my family came from. Oh, it's like they're familiar. There's just this, you know, there's these very strong-looking, almost very standoffish, almost unapproachable figures. And I'm interested in what people were able to tell you about these folks, or what you know, the stories they told of them, or what they thought of them, and and how did you find these folks too? There's another thing. Oh well, um, so I have been in the states. Oh gosh, uh, I don't know four or five years, and um, so I grew up in the, the suburbs of London, and in Italy I lived just outside of Milan, and I came to the U.S. Um, because of my husband, and we landed in a tiny coal community, a little coal town, and I had no idea uh, that this part of America existed. You know, I, I would see New York and Chicago on the, the, the movies. I hadn't really visited the U.S. before. Right. Um, so I came to this tiny coal community, and it's like a tiny pocket of history, um, you know, in the UK and in Italy, there are thousands of years of history, and you get to uh, Colva is a little town, and it was just coming up on its centennial. Um, and what really amazed me was this, were the stories that everybody was telling. You know, as soon as they started talking to me, I realized I was from somewhere else. They said, "Oh, my grandparents or my parents were, you know, they came over, and this is what their life was like." And I just loved. I just just fascinated. Um, it was just charming. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but um, I was really drawn in. And it was about the time I was trying to write a novel, and it wasn't really going anywhere. Um, but I was determined this time in my life, this is when I'm going to, to finally become a novelist. Um, and then I met Irene, uh, who is Pietro's daughter, and uh, she had an Italian document that she, she asked me to translate. And she started telling me about her parents. And this, over and above all the other stories that people had told me, this was just such a fascinating story. And, uh, you know, I realized right away it would be a much better story to write than the story that I was trying to write. And um, I was a little bit nervous about asking her because, you know, this is her family and, and her story to tell. But... Um, when I did ask her, she did not miss a beat. She said, I've always thought it would make a great novel. Mm. That's how that came about. 
Well, that's something else. And the interesting thing, too, was you go into um, Pietro and Assunta and, and their their family and friends, the people who made this journey. And mm-hmm. I think what they went through, when you, you see them traveling from place to place, getting on an ocean liner, trying to get over there, and what they went through was not unusual for immigrants trying to come to the United States. Uh, Most of the ocean-going vessels in the late 19th, early 20th centuries were designed to basically bulk carry people. Um, Third class in steerage was basically to serve the immigrant population. Yep. And that was interesting, too, because you, you you told some pretty interesting stories about the little things you got the details of being on those on the ship and and what it was like to come in did you have any point of reference for 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 that was there source material did, did were there any stories handed down of how what was it like to be on the boat what was it like to get there that kind of thing actually that was something that um people didn't tend to talk about you know that part of the journey so a lot of that research um i had to do separately. So I did go to Ellis Island, a fascinating place, Um, and I read a lot about what people went through. And actually, by the year that they came over, 1911, steerage no longer existed. So in my early drafts, I was relying on information about steerage. Um, And then I found out, oh, no, it wasn't quite steerage. It was actually better. But I think when you read the, the story, it wasn't a pleasant journey at all, but it was better than it had been 20 years earlier. So that's that's where I found those details. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. It was like uh, ships got, became bigger. They became better, better built and that sort of thing. And I mean, if you looked at the ships from like the White Star, the Cunard, the Allen and other lines, and I've always been interested in, in ships and I admit shipwrecks, and you look at some of the boats that sailed across and and crossed on a regular basis and you sometimes like how did they get across the north atlantic because some of them just look like they should not be able to do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah one day i'd love to make that journey have you ever been on a a a big liner on the atlantic no i have not i'm afraid not It's um, something. Uh, it's it's something I never got the opportunity to do. And having been having been to sea on a fishing boat in absolute fog, where you can't even see your hand in front of you, is off the coast of Maine. Is probably the closest I'm going to get to the high seas. <laughs> wow, <laughs> sounds scary. But yeah, it kind of, it kind of was. But it was it was it was. It was like everybody was having a good time with it, so I was like, "All right, well, I'm," I, and I was a kid at the time, so it's like, "Well, the captain knows what he's doing." I hope. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> but yes, um, that's the thing. It was like getting in and, and getting accepted, navigating customs. There was another thing. Um, I read a story that customs inspectors used to play tricks on people. And they would just assign a last name to someone if they couldn't get the spelling or pronunciation right. If if they gave a name that they couldn't spell or couldn't quite figure out, either as a joke or just because they were just in a hurry, they would just write any name. Did your family ever – did these folks ever run into that problem? Did they end up with a name on their card that said, wait, that's not my name, Is something like that? The characters who um, are in the book – um, that did not happen to, but it did happen to Irene's husband. So Irene was the lady, uh, Pietro's um, mm-hmm. daughter, and it happened to her husband. And it's it's really sad, um, and I, I, I tried to help. So when his father came over, his father was 16. Um, he came from a country that no longer exists because it was on the Iron Curtain, the town has been obliterated, so all records have gone. And when he was coming through customs, being illiterate, they made up his name. And mm. later on in life, he wanted to know who he was, and his son John wanted to know the, the family. They have never been able to identify their original name. So they have 
no idea of the history. The town does not exist anymore. Records do not exist. Um, and it, it makes me so sad. And I, I did try and help when, uh, you know, when John was still living, um, you know, to help him find his family, but to no, no avail. That's too bad. Well, the other thing, too, is in this story, um, as you say, Pietro and Asanta, they end up in Pennsylvania, they end up in coal country, certainly not an unusual place for immigrants to find work. And um, the one thing, I think we talked about it a little bit briefly, the culture shock. And you document Asunta's sort of, her introduction to the States and finding a place to live. It's like landing on, it must have been like landing on another planet. Right. Yes, yeah. I, I'm sure she had an idea of what it was going to be like in Italy because there were lots of stories in Italy. So mm-hmm. Italy was in a, a, a tough place, um, economically speaking, and um, there was very little work in, in certain areas of Italy. And uh, so a, a lot of men were coming over to work in the coal mines and they would either come over with or without their families. Many intended to come over and earn enough money to go back and then um, live out the rest of their days in Italy. But um, uh, So there were lots of stories about this wonderful place um, where, you know, it was full of gold and you, you could earn a lot of money. And it was the stories were reinforced by the people coming back with a lot of money to, to reestablish themselves in Italy. But... Mm coal towns, especially the town that they first went to was a shanty town, um, it would have been very rough and not at all what she was expecting. Yes. And that's the thing too, is um the few that came back with money were the lucky ones and there were so many that probably realized, well, I'm going to have to stay here or I'm gonna to have to call for my family and have them come because there's just no way. And that was another thing is the poverty and just uh, you don't pull any punches about what some of these folks go through. And I think that's that's another thing is this book has an element of, rom- of romantic uh, period style to it, but there's no romance about living this life, is there? Right, right. Well, I do hope towards the end it gets a little bit better. <laughs> Um, and right. I think that was people's real experience if they started in the shanty. You know, by the time they got up to a company house, the company towns that were built were built. Um, they were quite, I don't know if luxurious is the right word, but, you know, people could have um, a detached house. They could have a front yard and a backyard. And that was kind of a big deal for people. And they did get to a point where I wouldn't say they were wealthy, but they were certainly could live a better standard of life than than they had experienced before, but but yes, it was it was brutal. It was the American dream, but there was a, a lot of hardship along the way. Mm-hmm. And you know, in my books, in my writing, music has always been an inspiration, and it's something that I explore because throughout my life, it's always been something that's just been there. And the music for Pietro, especially, is such a sustaining thing. And I don't think we always notice that. And that's something I try to bring out is the quality of what music really does for people is not just to entertain. It has so much more. And you can see how, I mean, music is the one thing Pietro really has that's his. And you see that as sort of like, at least I felt that it was like for him, he knew his future was there, but he's got to go through all of this. And it's like the music he can take refuge in it kind of. Yes, yes, totally. Um, and I think that's that's true of music and that's true of um, art for artists. Um, he he does go through a struggle because, you know, that being able to call himself a composer is, you know, he has that self-doubt. Um, he doesn't have enough confidence. But absolutely, music, um, without music, uh, he feels there's nothing in, in his life. Um, and it... it totally supporting and uh, you're a musician so yeah I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, recognize that in him well it, it was it sometimes it is the only thing you have and um, that's real life for, for many people and I really feel like there was that thing for him and it was also really without again giving away all of it you 
see how people finally, like Pietro, Asunta, and all of them adjust. And they, you know, they adjust to the American life. And they realize that, no, the streets are not paved with gold, but we can still do something here. And I really enjoyed, as the story went on, is you see people triumphing over what would would probably drive most other people mad or even kill them and it's like so it's there's a there's a good lift but it's not like a crazy uplift it's a nice positive forward sort of yes this is yours if you want it and i really like that oh i appreciate that thank you and and there's a question that follows up is whenever i write i feel like i'm living out the stories of these characters i've created and did you ever get that feeling, like that emotional wrenching every now and then as you're writing it of, you know, like, like you're living it? It's like you're there and you're feeling it. Does that ever come across in your writing? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And um, I don't know if it was because this story was inspired by real people, but I felt I owed it to them to try and get as close to what they might have experienced as possible, and so I and I do this as actually as a an exercise sometimes when I sit down to write. If it is a difficult emotional scene, um, I try and talk myself into that emotion. Um, sometimes I might not be able to do it just jumping into their head right away. Sometimes I can draw on my own life. Um, you know, a time, I don't know, I was particularly sad, and I can talk myself into that and then write that scene for that character. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've actually taught this in, in workshops, in writing workshops, um, and the trick is to have a pick-me-up afterwards when you finish writing the scene um, to, you know, uh, get happy again and remind yourself you just got sad for that, that purpose. Um Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, there are times I can reread a scene and, and tears will come to my eyes. It does happen. It's it's funny when I write something that I or I look something at back at that I did ten years ago. Um, my my current works in the Sweet Dream series were all written many years ago, and the original is nothing like what I've got now, but I, I remember looking back at it, or I look at some of the old things I've written, and I remember specific scenes, and when you get emotional after reading it again, and you think, okay, I guess I did my job with this part of it. Yes, it's, yeah, it's, you've it's, done something of value. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's like, it's like, oh, great, now I feel like crap again, but... I did it right. So <laughs> there's right. your there's your lift back <laughs> up, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And if you're feeling it, hopefully your reader will feel it. And as long as we're not talking about, um, you know, a tragedy, then hopefully at the end of the story there's some bright light that the reader can experience along with you and then find the light with you. And I don't know. I always like to think that that, that can somehow be a beacon to the reader's real life. Right. Very true. Well, you've touched on this a couple of times. Um, I like to always ask about people's beginnings now. You were born and you were raised early on in the UK. Where in, what was it like? Um, Well, I spent the first eight years in a little village, Um, so a lovely little village. Um, It was on the Thames Estuary, Mm. and we used to go horse riding every uh, Saturday morning along the coast, and uh, they're actually World War bunkers, World War One bunkers, um, which at the time just seemed normal. You know, see them all the time. But now I'm fascinated. <laughs> you know, looking back, wow, that was quite an adventurous playground. Um, and then we moved to when I think I was eight. We moved to the suburbs of London, and the world kind of closed in on me a little bit because now I wasn't allowed to walk down the street to the park because you know it's a different neighborhood and uh, a lot more strangers around so um Hmm. but yeah yeah it was uh it was fun the most memorable thing about um an impactful thing about my childhood i think was that my parents loved to travel and of course we had to go with them so (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of great you got to see got to see places at a young age that most of us probably would not have that's right yes yes yeah yeah we would uh often go to greece for the summer, like three weeks at a time, and just island uh-huh. hop. 
And um, we went to a lot of European countries, and we also went to Tunisia, we went to India, we went to Nepal. So my parents are definitely not afraid to, <laughs>、um, to go to really different places. And to for a child to be in those different environments, that just must have been fascinating and, and probably exciting, right? Yes, yes, yeah. And you really get a sense that the world that you're living in is just a part of a great whole. And I think that's a very important、um, perspective for somebody young to know that there is a lot more going on.、Um, I think the place that impacted me the most was India.、Um, But I didn't come back with euphoria. I came back with this sense that we had so much, but I had seen so many people without.、Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was difficult for a time. I, I felt guilty, I guess. Really? And there's the, the growing up.、Um, I guess the main thing I've always found is that our early years are formative and. You've given us a perspective that many didn't have to travel and to see all these different worlds, but also what we read, what we watched, what we listened to. And with that is always what, what's on our parents' shelves.、Uh, so, what were you into and what were your parents reading? I always wonder about that. Oh, gosh.、Um, so, I guess censoring wasn't a thing in my parents' house. So, when I had finished my bookshelf of kids' books, I just went through、um, <laughs> their bookshelves.、Um, and that was fine with them, and I'm really grateful for it now. But I got,、uh, gosh, I remember they had some Graham Greene. I, I read, read the,、uh, the, the one with the thumb.、Um, oh, gosh, Jack Kerouac. I read him、oh, when I was、right. young. Um, yeah, I can't think of any particular titles, but a、uh, huge influence also in my teenage years were、um, The Lord of the Rings and fantasy novels.、Yeah. I used to devour <laughs> them. <laughs> you too,、cool. did you read them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I read, I read The Hobbit at, at nine and The Lord of the Rings at ten. And I, I've. They were really very much the, the, the real inspirations at the beginning of things for me. So, and they've always remained that way because of Tolkien just went somewhere that, that to a young person's mind, it's like this, trying to wrap your mind around it is, is, is a little hard, but it was the most enjoyable thing. And I was very fortunate, too, that my parents were totally cool with whatever I wanted to read. They were like, please do, go for it. So it was cool. Yes, yep. <laughs> Now, did Tolkien strike you in particular? You mentioned Graham Greene.、Uh, anyone in particular that really hits you that,、uh, at a young age? Gosh, yeah, I think Tolkien is probably top of the list.、Um, right. I, I, I have a, maybe my memory serves me wrong, but I read the, the trilogy in a week.、Um, I did nothing else in that week. <laughs> wow. But、uh, yeah, I read it in a week. Oh, there was、uh, another author that.、Um, Gosh, nope, I can't remember the name right now. Richard.、Um, it, it'll probably come as we're talking. It'll come. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's awesome. And, and was there anything early on that said that I can write my own? Is there, was there anything of that sort? Yes, yes. So when we would island hop in Greece, I had this big epic fantasy going. Um, and I think we started going when I was about six. And I don't remember if that's when the epic fantasy started, but、um, we would always go out on boats. And I would lean over the back of the boat, and you know,、uh, the sun sparkles on the top of the water.、Um, yes. Every sparkle was a、uh, mermaid. And there was this whole empire underneath the sea. And I, oh, I don't know the stories. I wish I'd written them down. I have no idea what they're about. But I remember every boat trip,、um, I would narrate these stories in my head, probably out loud too. I don't know.、Mm-hmm. So I already, always had that you know,、uh, storytelling. I was all, forever telling stories. And、uh, I actually remember the first time I wrote a story at school. And I could not believe、mm-hmm. we were allowed to do this. It was so much fun. Um, and I remember what the story was about. I remember that feeling of euphoria. And、uh, so as a teenager, I thought, wow, I love stories, I love reading,、um, 
let's sit down and become a novelist. And, uh, oh, it was great. Um, I had this really wonderful idea for a novel, and the first chapter was just, it just came rolling out. And then I hit chapter two, and that was the end. (laughs) 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 I could not come up with a chapter two. (laughs) I kind of have been there. I've been there. It's like that first chapter comes out so well, and then it's like, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, so that was anyway, and I, I, I kind of thought to myself at the time, I, I was very into, um, I didn't talk nicely to myself, and uh, so I said, well, I don't know enough, so there's no way I could be a writer because I don't have the ability, I don't have the knowledge, so I thought I needed to go out and get that knowledge and experience, and I kind of made a funny pledge in my head that around 40, I would be old and wise enough to write, so <laughs> that was when hmm. I could become a novelist. Okay. And so, yes, that leads us back to you had said you're going to go live in Italy for for a bit. And uh, where did you end up? And, and tell us about the you, 12 years in Italy and on what were you doing during that period? Oh, gosh. Um, so I landed in a, a town called Vigevano, which is southwest of Milan. And um, I worked in Milan initially um, I was an English teacher. I taught English as a foreign language, and oh, it was so much fun. Um, got to meet a, a ton of different people, and uh, I've still got friends today from from that era. Um, gosh, what did I do? I, I, I learned the language. That was a very important part of it. Um, learned to cook. Um, I fell in love with karate, and uh, I studied karate, and I even got to a national level, won a competition. <laughs> Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I did uh, a few other jobs. Um, I had a little import business of uh, American memorabilia, of all things. So I guess that was a sign that I was going to, at some point, end up in America. <laughs> and and there's uh, also, you were talking about uh, your early writings and then you're sort of the idea that you're going to be at a certain point now was your schooling or your education lent toward did you read literature did you lean toward that or how did that work for you uh no not really um so my highest um uh qualification is actually in translation well so yeah i guess it was in um words but I don't know how much I really kept in my head that pledge of when I was going to be 40 or if it was just something I said. Um, it didn't stick in the forefront, and I couldn't really see how I was going to earn a living doing that. Um, but I did become a translator, and so um, I did study um, at City University in London uh, mm-hmm. to get you know, my qualifications as a translator. But ironically, all my translation has been nonfiction, so financial documents and uh, some magazine articles, which are a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were living out in the western part of, of Pennsylvania, so no surprise that you uh, came across uh, the radar of, of Sunbury Press. And um, how how was um, From Ashes to Song, what, what state was it in, or rather... I guess I guess the main thing I'm asking is how did you uh, choose us or how did we choose you as uh, to have you on the label and were you casting about for something for Ashes from Ashes to Song or what were you what was your plan to get it published I guess Yeah yeah so from Ashes to Song was um, a very long journey because you know I had this wonderful inspiration story and I had been working as a translator which gave me some skills to write but it didn't make me a storyteller yet. Um, and I didn't know the craft of writing yet. So I wrote many versions over the years. And at various times, you know, I would send it out and, you know, try and um, hook an agent or a publisher. Um, But as time went on, I started to think more about what I wanted from the, um, the, the process of becoming a published author. And I attended a workshop with Jane Friedman, um, you'll probably know she's uh, amazing, um, really an authority on anything in the publishing business. And she laid out, um, you know, she was talking about big publishers and 
smaller publishers and self-publishing. And she was really talking about the type of person you are and what you want from this experience. And she led me to realize that I would be happier working with a smaller publisher and having that direct contact and, you know, having input with the book. And mm-hmm. um, so that redirected a little bit my search. But another important thing on my journey was still uh, that process you go through of learning the craft and, you know, honing your craft, really. So mm-hmm. I had to rewrite it several times. And then, uh, gosh, was it 2019? I had not submitted for quite a while, and I'd rewritten it. And Sunbury Press um, came up on my radar. And uh, I'd been through a lot of things, um, you know, in my life then, too. And I determined this was the year, and I've got to get it with the right publisher. And I think I pitched to five or six, and I got two offers. And Sunbury Press um, was the the publisher that appealed to me the most. Mm-hmm. And what kind of reactions have you gotten so far? Because uh, what I have heard, I mean, I've I've spoken on how I feel, and what I've I've had at least a couple of people say to me, "This looks really good," and I'm waiting to hear what they think. So, uh, how about the response and the reaction to the book from, say, your family, your friends, and, and these folks that perhaps you spoke with, and uh, that sort of thing? Oh gosh, it has been the absolute best. Um, you know, I thought it would be lovely but it's just been overwhelming was a, the people have come back to me with um such a good response to the book i mean first of all i'm honored that they would actually read it <laughs> to read it. um uh, i have had people reach out to me who i've never met before um people re- somebody reached out to somebody press um and some people contact me on facebook um just to say that it has brought back the memories of their childhood and the stories of their family. Um, another person came to a reading. I gave a reading at our local library, and, and she, she walked in, and she looked so happy and enthusiastic, and she sat in the front row as though she was about to burst. And then she said, hey, I had clarinet lessons from Pietro. And I said, whoa. <laughs> wow. So uh, she doesn't actually remember much about him because she was 12 and she's in her 90s now. But, um, yeah, it, it's just so wonderful. Um, and the best thing is a lot of people have said to me that it has reignited the stories and they are now um, talking about their grandparents again within the family and more stories are coming up. And, oh, that's just the best thing. No, that is. Now, there's another thing, too, with, with the contact with people, getting out there. I was taking a look at some of the things you have done and you've been doing up in your area of Pennsylvania. Um, you were part of something called the Mindful Writers Retreat Series, and being Buddhist somewhat, I kind of thought of, hmm, this sounds like a mindfulness sort of thing. Could you tell us a little about that, and, and what are the value of these kinds of uh, retreats and so forth? Oh, gosh, these retreats have been life-changing for me. Um, so the group began with um, a lady called Madhu um, Bazaz Wangu. Uh, she lives in Pittsburgh, um, and mm-hmm. she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And she uh, started the Mindful Writers Group originally as uh, just one local group, and it's become a whole network. Um, She leads us in meditation, um, and the meditation is specifically for writers. So you you can listen to her on YouTube as well. Um, Just a 10 or a 15 minute, she'll lead you through a meditation. And in the group, the idea is then to sit down, and your mind is just amazing. Your mind is so in tune with your story that you can sit and write for hours. Um, and another wonderful lady called Kathleen Shoup, um, she started the retreats, gosh, for how many years ago? Um, so it's the same thing as a group, but we, we stay together for um, three, four, or five days in a camp. And the first thing we do in the morning is just wonderful. We do meditative walking. Um, so as... Mm-hmm. The sun comes up, we're all out in the woods, but separately, and we're all channeling our characters, um, and then we sit in a room together, 
and we don't talk, we just write. And it's just something very magical about being in a room, even though we're not communicating, there's a creative energy that arises. And uh, when I'm at these retreats, I can write for 12 or 14 hours a day. It, it's utterly amazing. Um, such a wonderful group of people. And that's so interesting. I mean, there is something to be said for it. And sometimes when I write, I will zone out. And it, it's sometimes I'm writing in dead silence or I've got music playing. And people have often asked, well, what kind of music do you play when you write? And I said, it's, it's whatever my mood strikes or whatever the shuffle on my iPod dictates is going to get played because I'm just going to sit down. I'm not going to be paying attention to it, but it, it does kind of come in. And this is familiar because um, the New Age artist Kataro supposedly composes first by meditation. And I don't know how true all of this is. A friend of mine told me about this, but that he would go in, he would go somewhere into the mountains or somewhere and he would meditate for however long it took him. And then when he returned he would write music. And I thought, that sounds very familiar, very similar. Beautiful, yes. And, uh, and no, you've gotten some, so th that's a really interesting tool. That is something that we, we all could tap into, I think. And maybe we all do on a, on a subconscious level that we get in a zone and we start writing. And I think there is something meditative about that because you're, you want to let yourself go. You're letting your thoughts go. You're letting you're letting all of it, as as Krishna Das would say, you would let that expletive deleted go sometimes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's it's whatever comes, and it's the same thing as as I think Thich Nhat Hanh says. It is what comes in. You are aware it's in. It goes out. You're aware it's out. You're just you're not clinging to anything. But something still remains because then we go back and we write. I think this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I love the way you describe it. Yes, totally. Now, there's a couple of other things you've done up there. Uh, the Festival of Books in the Alleghenies, I looked into coming up and doing this once, and I, I just was not able to do it. You served as a chairperson. Tell us about the festival and what it is like and, and what it does. Yes, yes. So um, the Festival of Books, um, it started because, gosh, so everything really starts with Pen Writers, which is a statewide writers' organization. And mm -hmm. um, I was um, on the board of Pen Writers, and I was representing this area, so I set up a writing group called the Inkwell. And um, one day we had somebody walk into the Inkwell and say, hey, have you ever thought of having a book festival? And we said, well, tell us more. And that turned into the Festival of Books in the Alleghenies. And I think that was 2017. And uh, we've had three festivals, three in-person festivals so far. And in 2020, we were able to do a series of um, interviews that went out on Facebook and YouTube um, with uh, local and regional authors. And, um, oh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. We managed to... Um, bring authors into the community. So there's very much a community um, thing going on. Um, and we try and involve local businesses. And this past year, we did a project that um, I'm really, really proud of. We were able to take authors into schools. We'd thought about doing it in the past, but it was always cost prohibitive. But of course, mm -hmm. one of the silver linings of COVID is now all schools use Zoom. So um, we, uh, we had some authors go into schools and, and talk to them, really connect with the kids and interact with them. So uh, it's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess as uh, we're coming down to the end here, what is next for you? And um, where, you know, where can we find you these, these days? Okay, so um, what's next? I'm putting the final polish on uh, book two, so hopefully I'll be able to send that off soon. Um, and I have a website. It's um, hillaryhawk.com, and um, you can find lots of information there. You can sign up for my newsletter. So I do a newsletter um, about what I'm doing, you know, with my writing, but also I do a little thing called Story Everywhere, um, where I'm on a quest to find the story of everything. <laughs> so um, 
I'm also on social media, mainly on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And um, if you hop on now, I actually made a quest, uh, a pledge in 2022 to post uh, a photo a day. Um, and that's been a lot of fun so far. All right. And where can we find From Ashes to Song? Or where can the average reader, uh, the, the person who wants to go into this world, find it? Oh, yes. Well, um, it's on the Sunbury Press website, on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, and um, it's in quite a few local shops, um, but you can always request it through your independent bookstore and, of course, bookshop.org. All right, very good. Well, last question I have to ask, and I always ask everyone this. Uh, if somebody is interested in writing they have a story in mind or they've they've got an idea that they're working on, what's the best advice you think you could give them? Find your community. Um, for me, that started with pen writers, and really I would not be here without that writing community. Find a writing community that will uplift you and um, with people who may be further along on the journey but who will bring you up with them and, and share their knowledge um, because there's a lot to learn. Um, for writing a book and for also the business of, of putting a book out. So that, I think, would be the best advice I could give. All right. Well, Hillary, it was a pleasure meeting you at Sci-Fi Valley Con not too long ago. And, yes, um, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to have had you on, and uh, I think we'll talk again for sure. Um, so all the best, and again, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much, Tori, for having me. I so enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show today has been Hillary Hawk, author of From Ashes to Song on the Milford House imprint of Sunbury Press Books. I'm Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey release Call It Love, the sequel to Searching for Roy Buchanan. These and other works are available at sunburypress.com, Amazon, and yes, ask for them at your favorite independent bookstore. Thank you for joining us. This is the BookSpeak Network. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.